I'm going to pray before we get started, but as a quick review, we're going through the book of Judges, Old Testament. I had the sweetest experience today. Um, I don't think they're in here, so this should be okay. Um, but we have a new student at the school, which is really cool. I'm going to be really embarrassed. Okay, <laughs> just check over there too. Don't miss him. Um, we have a new student at the school, and uh, they came into the classroom, and I've got this like in Bible 101 kind of thing going on. And this new student came in and uh, <clears throat> was sitting there. We did Bible class, and then I gave them homework, and they didn't have a Bible, so I gave them a Bible. Um, and then they didn't know where John was, so I opened up to John for him. And then I had them start reading John chapter five to do their homework. And I had said previously, like, you know, if you have any questions or anything else, please feel free to ask. And so she raised her hand and was like, um, wait, in this, like what I'm reading, Jesus is on earth, but I thought Jesus was in heaven. And you could see the whole class kind of like realized that like, and then we had this really, and she didn't know like anything at all. And she was like, I've never read this book. Like I've only heard things. And I was like, and I saw the rest of the class. There were like five of them. I saw them like notice this when she asked this question and like turn and they were dead. They were just like silent and they like just waited. And so I talked to her. She asked a few questions, you know, about like, so like, where did God come from? And just like asked a couple questions and we talked about it. And like another one of them kind of chimed in and helped, you know? And then one of them came up to me afterwards and was like, we might need to go do the things we, we might need to repeat some of the stuff we did earlier this year. And I just thought it was the cutest thing ever because <laughs> all these kids, they were just starting to like look out for this new person. So if you think about it, pray for that because where do you even, oh my goodness gracious. So I'm, it's fun to have them in class, but I'm a little intimidated. So pray that the Lord would speak and it's just fun. Let's pray, shall we? And then I hope you guys are ready to get your map on. <clears throat> it's not going to be much, I promise, but <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. And I just ask that you would bless it and that you would speak by your Holy Spirit. We thank you in all things that it has always been you and it's always been about you. And so I claim that promise, Lord, that um, <clears throat> where we just ask for you to speak. You care about all of us way more than I ever could or we, we do. And so I, I just claim that and I ask that you would speak in the gift of prophecy by your Holy Spirit and that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a really quick recap, the book of Judges, <clears throat> being a, a sad story of the failures of Israel um, is a recap of the sad stories of the failures of Israel. And it's a nation that was supposed to represent God on the earth, but instead they crashed and burned. And as we go through this, there are three things at any given point that you can be thinking through. The first of which is the literal historical events of the book of Judges. Part of why I pull these maps up here, besides the fact that I find them interesting and it helps to break up a part that is a repeat of from, from Joshua, um, is that it emphasizes the fact that these are actual historical events. This is not a fairy tale made up. This is not something written as myth at all. It names people and it names places and it names times and all of them you can fit together and see the picture. And the Bible is, among other things, a very important historical document. Secondly, we can see obviously warnings for us individuals, right? We talked about last week, the allegory between the journey of faith in Egypt and the Red Sea of salvation and crossing over the Jordan into life in the spirit. And we'll talk about tonight again, the compromise that's possible within our own Christian lives is the Israelites compromise. And so as we walk through this, you can learn from the Israelites things to watch out for in your own heart, right? <clears throat> or things to bolster and but also, I think it's interesting to learn about Israel and how they walked as a nation and what it looks like for us as Christians to walk in the midst of nations or cultures of wickedness. So all those things, but I promised from last week <clears throat> that I would recap the parts that I didn't have. So we're gonna recap really quick the parts that I didn't get to show on the map. 
So I hope you're ready. If you have not done this yet, this is a really simple map. This is how Israel looks topographically. <clears throat> Every single place in Israel is running to one of two places. It's either a slope towards the Mediterranean or it's a slope towards the Jordan River and its other pieces. <clears throat> um, and then you have the mountains, do, 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 the Jordan River Valley. Let me do that. Make, might make it a little bit bigger so you can see it. And uh, yeah, you have the Mediterranean Valley. You have the Jordan River. There's the Sea of Galilee up here, the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. And on this right side, all these mountains that go along. <clears throat> and these mountains, which follow along the Jordan River, except till they get halfway, at which point they shoot off to the left and you get this little valley known as the Valley of Armageddon or the Valley of Megiddo, <clears throat> which is obviously an important valley. Um, one small thing, if you have this little map and you're walking through it with me, I'm gonna give you just a couple cities tonight that you can add to it, should you like. But there, if you were going to add one point of detail, you don't have to, you can leave your map nice and simple. But the only other really important detail that I would give you to consider with understanding Israel locationally is that this particular mountain range is not thin. It actually extends outwards like this. And so it's like a thick mountain range that kind of goes through here, if that makes sense. And uh, I don't know how you could put that on your, your little map. You could just, you know, keep it like, just be a little bit like that. Yeah. I don't know. Do something prettier than that. But from there, in this mountain range, this area right here is where a lot of the really important cities of Israel will be. In particular, and if you don't have this one written yet, I'll give you your first city, which is right at the mouth of the Dead Sea. And it is the city Gilgal. And it's significant because it is the campsite of Israel before they crossed the Jordan River to attack Jericho, <clears throat> or after. But the book of Judges, here's what I'll do, I'll pull this open on this side. Perfect, look at that. Oh, you guys can see both sides of it. Yeah, okay, I'll run with it. Judges, chapter one, if you would, really quick with me, let's go through. I just wanted to show you this on here. <clears throat> Here's the map of Israel. I've darkened it a little bit to help you see. And we'll just run through this first chapter. Lord bless this. <clears throat> Look at verse eight. The children of Judah fought against Jerusalem. Dink, dink, which is right here. If you're writing on your map, Jerusalem is obviously an important city. It goes right here. It's just inside, lined up with the top of the Dead Sea. And um, it's a significant city for, <laughs> well, you probably know, many, many reasons, but not yet. Jerusalem is not going to be an important city for a long time, but it's there and you can mark it. <clears throat> the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites in the mountains, the south and the lowland. And then it explains exactly where they go. <clears throat> Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now this map is gonna get cluttered really fast, all right? But I want you to see this because God includes the details of these places. One, you might find it interesting, but if you don't, I believe that God includes the details of these places on purpose because you'll start to see things and we'll talk about it, all right? <clears throat> we have Jerusalem, which is that gold one. We have Hebron. Um, can you guys see that? Okay, all right, feels good. <clears throat> and they killed a bunch of people, verse 11. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir, which is right below it. Then Caleb talked about it in Othniel. Um, his nephew took Kirjath Sefer, which is known as Debir. So it, it gets conquered by this guy, Othniel specifically, who we're gonna see. Again, this is a repeat. And I'm gonna go, I'm gonna try not to go too fast. That was feedback. I got to go a little slower. So I'm gonna try. But also we talked about this last week. I don't wanna bore you. So, you know, I'm gonna try to find that middle ground. <clears throat> Look at verse uh, 17. 
Judah went with his brother Simeon and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zipoth and destroyed it. And they renamed the city Hormah, which is down south right there. Dink. So we're kind of making our way downtown. <clears throat> also, Judah took Gaza, thank you, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, the cities of the Philistines and all of their territory. And so you can see, as you look at this map, this kind of green, all these cities, and they mark this green circle, right? And so this is what I was talking about last week that I was going to show you is, well, there's, why, why do they do this in a circle? Well, they say, <clears throat> the Lord was with Judah and they drove out the mountaineers, these places, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Here's where we're going to get our first red dot. <laughs> so I'm going to mark in, in green the places that they conquer, which actually this is the last of them that they'd really talk about in this section. And I'll mark in red the things that they fail to conquer. And if you weren't here last week, a reminder again that this represents a failure on the part of Israel to follow the Lord. Remember the specific wording of their fear of the chariots of iron. That's going to come into play. God is not so weak that he could not destroy the people in these nations, but Judah began to choose to compromise the direct instruction of the word of God, either from fear or from doubt or from laziness or some combination thereof. And it's going to start a cascade that continues in the rest of this chapter. They gave Hebron to Caleb. That's that first green one we saw up there. <clears throat> As Moses had said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak, but the children of Benjamin could not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. And they are there to this day. So Jerusalem is actually not for us like a nice little yellow dot. It is actually a red dot of failure. That's a really small one. I'll make it bigger. Then the house of Judah also went up against Bethel and the word was with them and they took it. The third city that you'll add, and this will be, there's only gonna be a few, but we got them all right up front that I would love you to add to your notes if you could, is just north of Jerusalem. There's this city called Bethel. Or in English colloquial, Bethel, but it's Bethel is how they would pronounce it. This is the place where Joseph, I'm sorry, not Joseph, Jacob laid his head and had a dream and saw the Lord ascend or the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. And he called it, I have found like the house of God or the entrance to the house of God, Bethel, right? El, El means God. So anytime you see any name that ends in El, that's its own syllable. And it means something God. <clears throat> and so we talked about all this stuff. We have the city of Luz, if you would, verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages. I'm just gonna pull all these up. Or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ibleem, or Megiddo. Where are all these cities? Up to the north. See this? So if I pull out a little bit, dink, dink, you can start to see more red dots up here in the Valley of Megiddo, right? They failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. <clears throat> Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. I don't know why they had any trouble. <sighs> Some people got it. Some people don't. Some people slightly offended. I'm not, I didn't mention you. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer, or Gezer, or whatever you want to say. It's right there in the middle, just north of Ekron. You can see as I click it right there. Again, you don't have to write this on your thing. It's not meant for that. <clears throat> but you see from Judah's failures, then come Manasseh's failures, or just this pattern for Israel overall. So as Judah goes, so often Israel goes. And you see Manasseh couldn't quite drive out, and then Ephraim couldn't drive out, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalol, which are up here, I think. So this upper part is getting busy. See this right here? This, by the way, is right by, we're gonna actually see these two places again. So remember them. This is right 
where Mount Carmel is, where this mountain range uh, comes in and meets the sea, right here, right? You got this beautiful valley and everything with this valley. And then you have Mount Carmel right here, dink, like that. I don't know why I keep saying dink. I'm gonna try to stop. <laughs> and it's a really beautiful section. And so people love to sit there, but this section is gonna come right back into play. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, Sidon, Ashlab, Akzib, Helba, Aphek, Rehob. <clears throat> Sounds like I'm trying to sing that part from the Prince of Egypt. All of these along the northern coast. Then, uh, it actually says, and somebody made this point to me last week, which I really liked. Notice in verse 32 that it switches the language. There you are. Thank you, Michael King. Excellent point you made to me. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of all these places, verse 32. So it says the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. So it's like, you see how it's getting progressively weaker? Before it was that Israel kind of allowed people to dwell with them. And now by the time we get to Asher, it's kind of the reverse of that the Canaanites are just kind of letting Israel dwell with them. Does that make sense? There's, it's just not going well. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. These are these uh, mountains right north of the Sea of Galilee. I'm flashing them. Hopefully you can see it right there. Dink. They are also gonna, I'm gonna, shoot, I called myself out. I shouldn't have done that. Those are gonna come into play later as well. The Amorites, uh, verse 34 forced the children of Dan into the mountains and would not allow them to come down to the valley. For the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris and Echelon and Shalbim. I don't know where they come up with these names, but <clears throat> right down here, north of Judah. Okay, so just stay with me. And the Amorites was in this border, verse two, or sorry, chapter two, and we get back to this place. Before we do that, Look at this map. This is, I'll take off the parts that they actually conquered because it doesn't mention them. Here is the places that Israel failed to conquer drawn out on a map. So you see it, right? A lot of places, a lot of small things. <clears throat> for Israel, as we're going to see in chapter two, this is going to be a source for them of continuous destruction. The influence of all of these nations around them is going to make it the temptation for them to follow after other gods is gonna be far more than they will even bother to try and fight against. So much stems from just the initial failures to drive out the things that God had asked. For us as a nation of people, obviously like we're in a place where we have a nation and it's founded on God or, you know, arguably or whatever else. We live kind of as people like this. We are people who live inside of a culture that is compromised all over the place. And so there's an interesting lesson as we look at Judah, just to see the people who were of God and how they tried to live for the Lord in the midst of the land, how they lived, is a lesson for us living in the midst of our land, which is spotted everywhere with the idols of the enemy. But then also in our own lives, how important it is that as the Lord calls us to drive out things, idols, wickedness, sin or compromise, we must be obedient to the Lord. It is possible because he has commanded it and every small compromise that we make, if we get to a place where we say, God, I reject what you want because I want what I want, it will always spread further and cause further destruction in the midst of our lives. So chapter two, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, which we talked about where Gilgal is. And Bethel is also called Bochim. So you already have it on your map, right? You can already see it. <clears throat> Jesus himself walks this distance. That's the angel of the Lord. <clears throat> I mean, we talked about this last week, but he says, why, why did you do this? 
I will not drive them out. They shall be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. And then very quickly recapping, Joshua dies in verse seven and they bury him at his inheritance, which if you're curious is this little blue one, which is between, it's just north of Jerusalem. It's over here in the mountain range on that side. And Joshua dies, which would have made sense if he was still coordinating the attack of Israel, it would have made sense for them to have him close to the center so that he was as easily accessible as possible. And so his inheritance is pretty much smack dab in the center of Israel, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, but for a sense of scale here, it's for fun. If you stick Indianapolis at the bottom of the Dead Sea, like that furthest bottom blue point, and you stuck Indianapolis there, up at the top underwater, under the Sea of Galilee would be South Bend, which like is, you know, might not be that bad, but. (laughs) That, this entire thing of Israel is basically half the size of Indiana. You can actually fit Indiana between the top of uh, Aquaba, the down here, the big one, the part of the, the Red Sea, and the top of the Sea of Galilee is roughly the height of Indiana. So there's a little bit of scale for you. <clears throat> Verse 11. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. Then they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. The cycle that we'll see is the same cycle over and over. They're gonna describe it. They follow the Lord and then they die and their children do not follow the Lord. And so they are captured. Um, they're going to do a classic Bible thing here. So we're going to read through it where they're going to explain the entirety of the book of Judges, the whole rest of it. And then in chapter three, we'll go back and we'll actually do the book of Judges through. They forsook the Lord and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. These are different gods. Um, Really the same ones that we serve often today. Baal of materialism Ashtoreth of lust and of so many others. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn, and they were greatly distressed. God is so faithful to do two, many, many things, but two things in particular. The first of which is, as we talked about last week, um, the easiest road to get to hell is one that has no turns, no bumps, nothing on it that makes you go, wait a minute, what direction am I going? And so often prosperity in the midst of a person's life, if it continues, is a really effective way to get somebody to ignore God for their entire existence. Because at what point do I need him, right? You do, but it's harder to see spiritual needs than physical ones a lot. And God is faithful not to let Israel get away from him. When they walk, God (laughs) knocks on the door, he digs potholes, he puts turns and signposts in their way, and he makes life for Israel and its people a misery because far better to be miserable on earth and then, then to go to heaven, then to be happy right, on earth, and then no misery in hell. And God is faithful to reach out. Um, my favorite example of this in the whole of scripture is in Revelation, where uh, there's the whole thing about the sealed of God. And then there's the section of time where the demons are released on earth and people can't die, but they still like experience pain and everything else. And to me, it's the most perfect picture of hell of where they can't die and it's this unending pain, right? And it's almost like God is saying to the world in its final moments and its death throes, hey, this is where you're going, turn around, right? The second thing is that God is faithful to judge. And all of us know somebody, 
killed somebody in our family and stood before the judge and the judge said something like, ah, it's your first time killing somebody. I'm really not that worried about it. You, you can, uh, I don't know, give me a hundred bucks and I'll put you back on the street, right? We would consider that to be an injustice, rightly, and also an evil. And that's because judgment and justice is a good done rightly, specifically by God. And God judges Israel. Nevertheless, God raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And obviously the the title of the book of Judges will see all of these different characters. You could actually rephrase this if you wanted, and it might carry the weight of what this means more accurately. Uh, God raised up heroes or leaders in Israel. Some of them would judge Israel in a literal sense where people would come to them for answers and they would be considered judges. They're not the only ones, they're just the ones that are highlighted. But some of the characters that we'll see are just like people who go out and they do a heroic thing and they're kind of called a judge. So you could call this also the book of heroes, the heroes of God, or the book of the leaders of God. And it would mean very similar to what it's talking about. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the cycle of Israel, the Lord was with the judge, delivered them out of the hand of all of their enemies, all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. But it would always come to pass when the judge was dead, that the children of Israel reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. By following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. The description of the book of Judges, it's gonna be a really happy book. (laughs) Couple things. One, may the Lord cause us to be people who learn in the easiest way and people who remember the lessons that we have been taught. May we remember the lessons of our fathers, right? (laughs) Both in the good and the bad and honor the Lord. But also I love, and obviously I was a youth pastor for a while, that incredible emphasis on bringing up the next generation to follow the Lord. So many times Israel, it just depended on if the people had seen the hand of God move or not. There was not the passing down of the works of God, of the spirit and the character of God. Like Israel consistently failed to teach their children over and over, which God kind of warned them about because in the law, it's full of times where God says, hey, you're going to do this so that you can teach your children. I want you to put the law on your doorpost so that you might teach your children. I want you to do these feasts so that you can teach your children. I want you to take the stones out of the river so that you can teach your children. And that's why it's so important that we don't have a childcare here. We have a children's ministry. If you ever wanna make Jason annoyed, go ask him how childcare went. It's a pro strat if you want it. Because we don't have childcare. We have children's ministry. You as parents, same thing. You have a ministry to your children. You have a responsibility. And uh, with youth, I saw it all the time. The world and the culture in which we live desires to separate your influence from your children. Don't let it happen. Verse 20, chapter two, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them, I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And so God said, I'm going to leave them there and they will be a test to you. It's certainly true that we are unable to remove every influence of the world from our kids. Uh, I, you know, it's good to try. It's always fun having conversations with parents about like what they feel like they should do and how you draw those lines. Of course, there's so much wisdom in that, but ultimately it's true that you'll never be able to get all those influences out. And so, and then people go out into the world. And so what you build in to them matters. Chapter three, 
Now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was so that the, the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. All right, I'm gonna give you some maps. Ready for this? And I'll, I'll tell you what, so don't freak out off the top of your head, off the bat. <clears throat> the Lord left, verse three, five lords of the Philistines. This is this section down here. Don't write it yet because you want to see them all before you try and write this on your map. <clears throat> I'm going to take the low end off because it's kind of, I missed this. The area of the Philistines is Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, this sort of like modern day Gaza and the area around it. This is the land of the Philistines. You've probably heard of the Philistines. Um, there's a famous one that has really, really tall. Yeah, everybody. <clears throat> they will come into the story a lot. But so do the other ones. And this might be exciting because I don't know. I, don't, I didn't know exactly where these were until I went through this. And I realized I've seen these names all the time and I just kind of abstract them away. But where they are is so often relevant to the story. All the Philistines, all of the Canaanites, Canaan is another name for Israel. And so it's just all of these guys that are already there. And the Sidonians and Hivites, which would be up here. See that North part? Specifically, remember Beth Anath, Beth Shemesh, all this kind of stuff. These are going to be uh, a major influence on Israel. Actually, even in the next chapter, these guys are gonna push down south and it's gonna be a part of what happens. <clears throat> so Hivites are the ones that are generally the most famous from this. So you have Philistines, Hivites. I'll show you how to add this to your map. Um, and they were left that they might test Israel. Verse five, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. This is over here on the east side. Actually, this Ammon, the actual mark that I put for it, is on top of another city, modern city, in the city of Jordan. It's the capital, which is the city of, anybody know? Amman. Amman, where the Ammon Knights were. So makes it real easy. There they are. <clears throat> the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I'm going to give you a couple other ones that are going to get mentioned later. The Amalekites, Amalek to the south. The Moabites on the southeastern part of the Dead Sea. So if you have your map, if you want to add this to your map, because these five are gonna come in to play a lot. The Hivites, least of all. So if you don't have any room at the top, don't sweat it too hard. But you have Philistines. The Ammonites. Moab below them. and the Amalekites. And up on the north part, you have the Hivites slash the Sidonians. But I just put Hivites. These will be recurring characters, unfortunately, in the story of Israel. And so if you know where they are, oop, I didn't make it as big as I could have, huh? There you go. There's the south part. <clears throat> if you know where these are, it will help you put all the stories into much better context. For example, the next story that I'm going to tell. So if you would, continue with me in the book of Judges. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot, I'm gonna go kind of fast through this part because we, we saw it, again, we saw it already. <clears throat> they served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot. He sold them into the hand of Cusham, Rithmishlam. I don't know either. The king of Mesopotamia. So who do they get controlled by? First of all, observe carefully on this map. You'll see it appear as I click. I clicked, there it is. Oh, wait, it isn't there. Why not? Because Mesopotamia is way up here. It doesn't fit on your map. 
Israel's first like conquered by is some randos from somewhere else. Like somewhere up in Canada, it's like, you know, Indianapolis got taken over by some like, not even, not even like Toronto, but like way up further, some random person. And it's like a good example of Israel, I think off the bat of like, hey, this is not going to go well for you. You run away from me and you will just get conquered by absolutely anybody I bring in. Doesn't matter where they're at, anything else. You will never succeed. I will bring you to your knees with the smallest of things. That's it for your map. When the children of Israel cried out after eight years to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Othniel, who we already met, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered, oh no, Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over him. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel died. Continual pattern. Then verse 12, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. All right, class, where's Moab? Thank you for pointing out right there. Yeah, it's the, over here on the Southwest side, right next to the Dead Sea. Against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon. Where's that? You found it? up on the north part, and the people of Amalek. Oh my goodness. Look at this. It's all coming together. <laughs> and they went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. I didn't mark this one because we, I, I like on the maps, it sometimes will give you a couple locations for a city and I'll pick one if they're close together. But if the, this one was like in like a bunch of places. So I just was like, I don't know. Look it up. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. This is one of those stories. The book of Judges is a lot of fun, specifically if you're a boy, and specifically for junior high boys, because it is just blood and guts. And I honestly, I feel like the person who wrote this book kind of appreciated that because it includes details that are arguably not necessary, but they're cool. <laughs> and they're cool because they're gory. <laughs> Ehud is left-handed. Uh, he's an unusual person. The Lord uses all kinds of people. Doesn't matter. You might think I am left-handed at this thing. My, my uh, brother-in-law told me one time, he said, you know, when you go to serve the Lord, often um, you'll look for what you're right-handed at. You know, the things that kind of, if you're writing your name right-handed, it's easy for you to do a good job for some of us. But if you switch to your left hand, like it's so much harder for you to accomplish the same thing. And even then it doesn't look as good. And often like you look at a thing and, and what you're right-handed at is something that a lot of times the Lord is pushing you into. And when you're operating with your left hand and what you're doing, it's just, it's hard to, to work with. <clears throat> this guy is left-handed in a culture where that didn't work out very well, but God uses him in an incredible way. And just a reminder, I think to us that God will use us sometimes, even in things that we feel that we're left-handed in, sometimes it needs to be done. And because the Lord calls, it's enough. In this case, it works out for him. He makes a dagger. I'll summarize this a little bit. And he fastened it under the clothes on his right thigh. So when they checked people, the, the guess to this, why this is so significant is that they would only really check a person's left side because that's where you would hang a sword. And so, because you're everybody's right-handed, you're not gonna be left-handed. <clears throat> and so him having it on the other side meant that he could take it in. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. His mother must have not liked him. Name him after eggs. I don't know. So he brought the tribute to Eglon and Eglon was a very fat man. When he presented the tribute, if, you, if anybody in this, some people know what's coming in this story and we're all kind of giggling. And if any, anybody's not read this story, I'm just, you're, get ready for this. It's one of them, it's so good. 
<laughs> Somebody just read ahead. <laughs> when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried it, but Ehud himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal. So he's in Moab and he goes up to Gilgal and then he turns around up north and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And then he said, don't say anything right now, hang on. And he sends everybody out and Ehud goes up to meet him. And the king was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. <laughs> you, read, you definitely read ahead. <laughs> then Ehud said, and I feel like this is the manliest thing ever. I have a message from God for you. And then he arose from his seat, reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and he thrust it into the belly of the king. I just think there's something so just great and manly about, I have a message from God for you. And he just like absolutely stabs him. <laughs> you gonna be okay over here? This is good. Even the hilt went in after the blade. Like, I don't know why they're including this, but it's cool. And the fat closed in over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. He stabs him. He's so fat, it just sucks the sword in and he explodes. <laughs> this is even better than I thought I would get as a reaction for this story. Bible's so cool. When he had gone out, the king Aegon's servants came to look and to their surprise, the doors were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. I'll, I'll NIV this for you. <clears throat> He's probably pooping. <laughs> That's what it means. So they waited until they were embarrassed and still the king had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them and there was their master fallen dead on the floor, but Ehud had escaped while they delayed and has passed beyond the stone images and escaped into the Jordan River Valley. God uses everything. <laughs> And it happened here when he arrived, he blew the trumpet. The children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab. And they did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed 10,000 of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years, right? God uses everybody. I think it's fun to see how the different little pieces of knowing where the river is, it's like, oh, it makes sense for them to grab this river because that's a strategic place for Moab to try and get through. You see the judgment of God on Moab for the evil that they had done. You see the work of God through a person who is left-handed and like you don't be left-handed in that, in that culture. <clears throat> and uh, an interesting start. After him, verse 31, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with a stick. And he also delivered Israel. I want more details on him. He killed 600 people with a metal stick. That's an ox goad, like not even a proper spear. It's just like a stick that you sharpen so you poke the ox so it goes the direction you want. You don't have to get too close. Killed 600 dudes with that. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I want more info, but I don't get it. So when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'll finish with this. <clears throat> so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So I'll show you a couple of places here. Uh, Hazor is up north of, ah, here we go. The Sea of Galilee. <laughs> And uh, do you, let, me, let me take off some of these just to make it a little easier for you to see. Oops. It's taking a long time, isn't it? Sorry. Here we go. I'll leave those on. Hazor is up here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Right there. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in this absolutely unpronounceable spot, which if you remember, I told you about earlier because it's that spot where Manasseh had not taken, right? So I don't know if you can see this right now. Jordan's squinting, so I'll help you out. 
<clears throat> it's on the left side right there uh, by the, I'm flashing it. So these two places, which they failed to take, are the cities that are then the seat of the attack of the enemy on them. Does that make sense? <clears throat> the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and this is our cap for the night. You ready for this? For Jabin had 900, what's the wording? Chariots of iron. Oh my gosh, we've seen this before. He had the thing that Judah feared, that they had not been able to drive out the people of the lowlands because of their lack of faith or lack of attempt. The chariots of iron, they have them. And for 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under a tree in a spot over here. I think it's the green spot. It's not that big of a deal, but it's close to where Jerusalem is. It's kind of north of it. And the children of Israel came to, up to her for judgment. So she sent and called for Barak, not that one, the son of Abilam, <laughs> and said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy your troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. She gets a word from the Lord. And so she calls the commander of whatever kind of army Israel has. And she says, hey, God has told you, I want you to go to this mountain and they're gonna attack you and I'll destroy him, right? This man did not ask for this. Barak, Barak, however you want to pronounce this, is just a guy who is trying to make his life happen to do his best. And all of a sudden God says to him, I want you to directly go into the teeth of the enemy. I want you to challenge him. He will throw absolutely everything he has at you. And I also want you to challenge him in a place where he is going to have the advantage and you're gonna win. And the challenge for him is to say, okay, and sometimes that's how it works with us. Sometimes we pursue the Lord and sometimes the Lord pursues us. And we're, the Lord just tells us to do something insane and we have to go, okay, I trust you. Mount Tabor is right here and uh, it's in the valley. And it's just this little mountain right there in the middle of the Valley of Armageddon. But what you'll notice about it, it's kind of the yellow one. I hope everybody can see this still. I'll flash it for a second. If you gather an army there, because the other, his capital city is up on the north side right here, and his army is over here, if you grab a bunch of people and then you go up here, it makes it look like you're about to go try and attack the capital, right? So because Israel gathers a whole army right here, it forces them to bring their entire army out to try and protect their capital city. Does that make sense? So that's like why God says, I want you to go to Mount Tabor or Tabor or whatever you say. That actually, the other fun part about this is finding Old Testament places and then finding them in the New Testament. This same mountain, Mount Tabor, is potentially the Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't that interesting? So Barak says, absolutely, sounds great. I'll be back in a bit. Actually, he says, if you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I refuse. It's interesting to give God terms and conditions, isn't it? So she said, okay, I'll meet you in the middle. I'll go with you, but there will be no glory for you, Barak, for the Lord will sell your enemy into the hand of a woman. So then they arose and they went. And to summarize this story, they do this. Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, the 900 chariots of iron and all the people who were with him. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. He does what Judah failed to do in that he went against the chariots of iron. You probably can't see it, but in blue here is the river Kishon, just to the bottom side of Mount Tabor. It's not this tall. Remember, I have the altitude uh, emphasized on this. But in the flat plain where Sisera had the advantage, Barak takes his army against the chariots of iron. And if you're Judah right now, 
and you see this, you gotta be feeling a little bit dumb because verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Sisera alighted from his chariot, that symbol of strength, and he fled away on foot. It's ours to see these stories and to remember the power of God and to be encouraged in the midst of our lives that if we would but trust the Lord, God will bring victory. Not because we have something so great or we're so amazing, but because if God calls, he will make a way. And this is a short story. It's a small segment in Israel's history because he said, okay, and he went. Whereas Judah and their failure to obey and pursue the Lord <laughs> begin something that echoes across the entirety of Israel's history and all of its catastrophe. It's worth it to trust the Lord. And then he, the leader of the bad guys, Sisera, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. <clears throat> and Jael went out to meet him and said, hey, come in here, it'll be fine. And she gives him some milk. And then he says, hey, will you stand at the door of my tent? And if anybody comes and says, hey, is the leader of the bad guys here? <laughs> you go, no. And then she says, go to sleep. Absolutely, I got you. And then I love, again, there's, I don't know why this detail was in here, but she took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to Sisera, the leader of the bad guys. And she drove the peg into his temple and went all the way through his head into the ground. I don't know why they include that detail, but it's cool. <laughs> So for uh, so he died. And as the Lord said, the glory was given to this woman who did indeed act bravely. <clears throat> God will be glorified. And sometimes we get that decision as far as if we uh, get to participate in the blessing of what God is doing as he glorifies himself, or if we are glorified or if God is glorified, like in spite of us, right? And uh, we don't get to participate in it. But God will win regardless every single time. <clears throat> On that day, God subdued the king of Canaan and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against the king until they had destroyed him. Obedience, blessing, disobedience, cursing, and everything else that comes from it. May the Lord help us to be people who are faithful and to trust the Lord in the midst of our land. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word that speaks to us. We love you and we praise you. Use us, help us, Lord, to, to uh, obey you and to destroy that which needs to be destroyed by your spirit in the midst of our own life. But also would you use us in the midst of this land? We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen.